This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Bob, it's so great to see you. Uh... We're at G-Man. We're actually on the north side today, and I want to thank Joe Shanahan for uh, giving us this beautiful room to uh, have a nice chat with an old friend. And uh, I guess as we get started, I have to give you a couple things. And um, for people listening, they're not going to see it, but you came in with a hat that had a C on it, and we're going to give you yeah. a hat that's uh, got an <laughs> S-O-X on it. It's a beauty. <laughs> oh, my God. What What's going to happen? Am I going to get rocks thrown at me when i step out of this building well the first thing i'm going to do is bend the the brim yeah you got to do that and then we also have a really cool pinstripe jersey oh it's a beauty with odin kirk and number I one love on the it. Back. can i wear it tonight to the cubs game yeah. <laughs> yeah. absolutely you can uh, you get yeah. to do it once <laughs> so I, I feel like we're getting, i love it it's great thanks man we're getting you back to your roots a little bit, right? It's true. Started with the socks. Yeah. I started with the socks because my grandfather grew up four blocks from Comiskey. He saw Babe Ruth play there. Um, and he took us there and we saw, um, you know, Harry Carey was there at the time. And uh, it was great. Great old stadium. Yeah. Do you so, remember how old you were the first time you went? Uh Probably eight or nine. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I did the math on that. It was around nine years old because I was going off when Harry was there. Harry was only there for like two years, right? No, he was there for maybe eight or nine years, oh, okay. I think. Yeah. When um, did he finish up? So 81 was his last year, I think, 82. Oh, yeah, because he was there for Cubs. disco demolition. He was. Oh, okay. Yeah. yeah. I was about 10. 10 or, 10 or 11, yeah. And um, we went more than once, but uh, and we sat underneath Harry's uh, booth. And I don't know why we got those tickets, but we would get those tickets. And he would drop down the net with the things to sign. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so what, yeah. what happened? What happened? To your White Sox fandom. What happened to my grandfather's White Sox fandom? He lived in Oak Park, and he started watching the Cubs, and then he only watched the Cubs. Uh, and he sort of made Cubs fans out of other um, family members. I think what happened was the Cubs were easy to watch on WGN. And, and also the reception was better because uh, White Sox were on, was it WFLD? Mm -hmm. yep. Yeah, and it was just not great reception. Even in Naperville, we would have, uh, you know, that came in okay, but not great. Right. The WGN was just easier. So this is all about I, vertical hold? It's very hold. strange. I don't know. I'll be honest. It's all about vertical hold. I'll be honest, though. I'm not sure my grandfather didn't also root for the Sox somehow. I think he did. He, he listen, he grew up there. 
near the stadium. He went there as a kid. I, I, I don't know why he was watching every Cubs game, but I think it was just the ease of it. And the afternoon games. At the time, right. it was only afternoon games. And then you can stay awake for the whole thing <laughs> if you're, you know, 80 years old. So Disco Demolition, were you watching on television? I was watching on television. Sadly, I was not a part of uh, the chaos it did look like someone would die there, though, didn't it? And if you yes. show someone a few seconds of footage and you say five people died, they'll believe you. Right. <laughs> um, uh, I wrote a movie about disco demolition, um, and it did not sell yet. Uh, hasn't I, sold yet. Yeah, hasn't yeah. sold yet. That's movies, man. Right. Hey, man, 10 years, that's nothing. So Maybe. what was the plot? We were telling the story of a kid and he gets swept up in it and goes, and it's a great summer. It's just a summer movie for, you know, it's like um, Dazed and Confused. Yeah. Yeah. It's sort of like that, but with Disco Demolition. And it tells Steve's story, too. Steve Dahl's story, because uh, at least told from Steve's point of view, it's pretty funny and very likable. Of course, he, Steve, thought no one would show up. And uh, he was sure no one would show up and he would look like a fool just in an empty stadium yelling at no one. And and they were completely unprepared for what happened. They were turning people away, right? Oh, well, eventually they didn't turn people away. I guess they just let the floodgates open because they couldn't keep them back. And um, my favorite little uh twist is that the there were too many explosives i mean by far too many too much and that the guy who did it was an ex vet was a vietnam vet who did explosives in vietnam and he just way packed it with way too much power which you can see if you watch it you're like that was unnecessary (laughs) and the and the crater it left i mean who thought he didn't adjust the explosives for how many record albums he had he just put that many in (laughs) He was going to blow that hole no matter what happened. And uh, I love I love that. I love the um, uh, Mike Vec, uh Bill Vec's son, was the guy who made it happen with Steve. And they were both in their 20s, right. 24, 27 at the oldest. Uh, I mean, 20-year-olds shouldn't be given complete free reign to organize a uh, anything called a demolition in a public space or a not a public space but a uh, a well-attended space i do want to make one serious point because steve is a friend of mine a friend of yours yeah and there were some cultural things attached to what happened that yes. really is not true and it, it it was not intended i mean yeah. he was a 24 year old disc jockey yeah it was a radio bit yes uh you know, and the, the the disco sucks thing was kind of I wouldn't say it was totally tongue in cheek. I mean, but he was a rock guy. And it, it, it uh, well, it, I it, think it that bit. it's a lot. What's some things that are lost in the um, in the look back and in the in the in the distant look that many critics had of it is that Steve was fired from a previous radio station because it went all disco. So he left on a Friday and on Monday morning he showed up and they said, we're all disco now play disco music all through your whole show. And he said, I don't want to, I don't like that. And he, anyway, he, he talked more than he played anything anyways, 
but uh, so there was a personal grudge against this thing that took over. I also think it's a little hard for maybe people from a distance to see that, you know, I've talked to people who were our age and they grew up in New York and L.A. and they did love disco music. It was a fad that caught on very strongly with all, all sort of all strata of society in New York and L.A., it seems to me from the people I've talked to, that it didn't catch on here. It was more, it was forced on us more. That's what it felt like to me. Like, and it was normal because the record company offices are in New York and LA. So they just think our kids are going to disco. So the kids in the Midwest must want disco. And so they're going to listen to disco. That's all we're going to give them now because that's what they want. When it's like, Nowadays, you know, the feedback from an audience is so much more, um, so much, there's so much more of it. Like they know what the difference between what kids in Atlanta are listening to versus kids in Chicago versus kids in New York. Back then, if it was hitting big in New York and L.A., it was just assumed that it was going to hit big in Chicago and that the people of Chicago and everywhere else would just love this thing, whatever it was. And that's just not really true when it comes to things like music and, and stuff. So, so even if, just imagine a station being all disco. I know if you have satellite radio, you have an all disco station and good for you. Maybe you stop in there once in a while. But think about you've only got probably like three rock stations, right? And you, you've got one of them is your favorite. And then they are just playing disco in the morning. You should not play disco in the morning unless you're working out. Anyway, there are a lot of sides to it that get lost in that critique that you're talking about, Len, where people say it was anti-gay, anti-black. Um, and it just never felt, from our point of view, it felt like, no, 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 you, you push this music on us. And we didn't choose it. And why do we have to? We don't like it. I mean, we were dying for punk rock, really. I couldn't mm -hmm. wait until a few years later, the replacements came along. And then that was my band. Um, so, yes, you're right. There's this, there, there are undercurrents to it that I, I also, like you, reject. I, I, I get how people perceive it that way from outside. But... For me, that that wasn't a part of it. You know, Steve did a Steve Dahl did a funny disco. Uh, do do you think I'm disco song? Right, and uh, it wasn't uh, homophobic. It, it it wasn't remotely racist. You know, it was a shitty, uh, skeevy guy who was on coke, hitting on women in the crudest, all, greasiest way. You know, so that's how we perceived it. We didn't perceive it with those other dimensions, but oh well. So if all disco wasn't a hit in Naperville, yeah, what else was playing in Naperville when you were growing up? <clears throat> what was I listening to? Um, I was listening to uh, ELO, Boston, Alan Parsons Project. Steve Martin's uh, album, Let's Get Small. Um, uh, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon. Um, and then I couldn't wait. Like I said, you know, when the replacements came along, that was the greatest 
thing for me. I love that pant. And then everything that emanated from that area. Ramones. I know that Ramones came before them, but that was my way in to some music that really meant something to me. Oh, I love Bruce Springsteen, too. Very much. That's pretty eclectic. Um, I was way into music way into music and in fact we're right next to metro and i was just talking to joe about how i bought the uh the wipers album there because the guy behind the counter explained to me who the wipers were who greg Jin was um and for people who know what i'm referencing you know how cool we both are me <laughs> and you for knowing what that means wipers are very cool yeah and they came. Do you know what? You know, I've heard of them. Yeah, absolutely. And they came first. Right. Right. Uh, By the way, people did not see the stare that you just gave to Lynn when you said they came first. Yeah, it's a very serious topic for you. I can tell. <laughs> well, I was a DJ at Southern Illinois University, and before that, at Marquette University, and that's that was I thought was going to be my way into showbiz, entertainment. Huh. You know, I mean, it seemed reachable a thing you could do you just needed a mic and um you know i liked i loved comedy i loved monty python that was my god as a kid and um i wanted to do sketch comedy and it seemed like radio was a place to i could do something right away and i did at marquette university at um at southern illinois university i had radio shows at both those places you probably were on WMUR at Marquette, and I was on WMUR. Yes, at I was. At one point, so we share that in common. Do you remember Dan Manila? Do you know oh, Dan? Oh, yeah. I know Dan really well. Really? Yeah. Oh, hi, Dan. Hi, Dan. I will let him know to listen doing to this. stuff. And yeah. Yeah, Dan gave me my fun show there. So I, I assume you read Bob Mayer's uh, Replacements book the second it came out like I did? I did. Bob Mayer's book is amazing. It's amazing, and it's... Um, and by the way, for anybody who likes to read about rock bands, Oof. please get Trouble Boys by Bob Mayer and have, uh, <laughs> a, it's just every tortured, uh, anarchic, rock and roll, personality clashing disaster that you can have and sadness, such deep, deep sadness. And beauty and... Everything yeah. great, too, right? Yeah. Well, <laughs> obviously, Bob Stinson's story is just heartbreaking. It is, yes. It's brutal. Um, not many rock and roll books have. Dee Dee Ramone's book was also harsh, hard to read for the personal revelation mm -hmm. of it. But uh, Bob Mayer's book, as uh, hearing Bob Stinson's story, is very hard. And it's amazing that guy could stand on two feet for any length of time as an adult and and then made it as far as he did after what he went through as a kid. And then the, the fun part is just the self-sabotage. Yeah. The self-sabotage was is just amazing. Literally burning and, per diem money. Like literally just for fun, let's let's light some cash on fire. But over and over. <laughs> and every single time, destroying everything they've built and then going, okay. We're going to do it right this time. We're going to be good boys. We really mean it. We're going to dress nice. We're going to show up at the party. We're going to make an album with a great producer. And we're going to make it 
sound great and, and the best of intentions and real drive. And this is our last chance. And it always ends in a just a massive 80 car pileup. <laughs> it's true. It's true. Well, the thing about replacements fans and Jason, we'll move on from this. I know that um, well, you're I'm, still learning the replacements catalog. For a moment, I thought I was at a Marquette reunion. Yeah. And I thought <laughs> all of the development people from Marquette were going to crash into here and ask you both for money. <laughs> well, uh, they, yeah, yes, it'll happen soon. But um, Paul Westerberg, kind of the leader of the band, um, you know, he once said that the people in the back who were afraid to mix it up, that he felt like he was one of them. And so you had this weird thing where you had half the, the audience came to see the 80 car uh, pile up. Pile yeah, up for sure. And then there was maybe 30% of the uh, audience who came to hear the music. And right. so you either wanted a disaster or you wanted the most transcendent show ever. Right. And it felt like you were going to get one or the other. Well, there's, there's a real parallel with the point of view. Um, do you know Tim and Eric? Mm-hmm. Um, that's a comedy duo and a lot of young people would know them yeah. and they've they've got a, a very unique style and I asked him where that came from and he said there's it's like a midwestern well they're from Pennsylvania I believe um, it's it's like an embarrassment to be saying Hi, I'm going to put on a show for you. And so those things where they cut away to people who are not, you know, presenting, you know, in the middle of a presentation, whether it's a fake commercial or anything, they'll cut away. They'll do these cutaways to the other person who's not performing. And it's like and, and including the slip ups, the person's vocal slip ups. It was all he said, it, it all came from an embarrassment that it was just so egotistical and yeah, it's just embarrassing to say, here we are, you're going to like us. And I think the replacements was the same way. It was like they put on the clothes. I saw them at the Aragon ballroom when they were dressing up. I don't know which tour this was. I think it was uh, Please Pleased to Meet to Me. me. Yeah. yeah, it was yeah. Pleased to Meet Me. And they decided to wear cool yep. clothes for a tour. I'm not sure they made it through the whole tour with the clothes, but I saw one of the shows where they dressed up. Um, and I guess they thought that, you know, we're going to really put on a show. We're going to have a presentation. It's not going to be sloppy. And, um, you know, there's just an embarrassment to like, I'm, I'm an entertainer. It's hard to do that when you're from the Midwest. It's hard to see yourself in that way and present yourself in that way. We're more Bill Murray types, right? <laughs> right. Bill walks around in the... Cubs hat or whatever, and just the clothes he whatever pulled out of the laundry pile, right? right? right. And that's just a Midwestern way of presenting yourself. It's it's hard to dress up and to say, "I'm watch out, here comes a great show. You're gonna love it." Chris Farley, he was over the top, but he really represented us. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris, it can go way too far, sure. as it did with the replacements. Yeah where you can't even get it together to put on even a bad show anymore because you just, it, there's got to be a better word than embarrassment. It's an existential uh, shame. <laughs> I shouldn't be alive. 
we feel that way. <laughs> and then you meet people from New York and, and LA and they're like, what? <laughs> yeah, you should look at me. Hell yeah, I'm cool. <laughs> and you're like, where'd you get that? What do you mean? Where did I get what? You know, and they just don't, you know, and you're like, oh, I need a little bit of that in my, in my soul so that I can get up and go out in the morning and do things. Oh, uh, well, I'm still proud to be from here and have that uh, energy and attitude because I think it saves you when the audience does go, yeah, we don't want to see your show. <laughs> then you're like, oh, I know. No, I always knew that. We've had enough of you. I know. I was waiting for this since I started. Since before I began, I was waiting for you to tell me that. When did you first feel that? Oh, well, you know, I came to Chicago to do um, improv uh, and I was at Cross Currents right around the corner here. It's no longer there. That was a great club. Do you remember it? I don't. It was a jazz club and it okay. was good for theater, too. It had a low stage um, and probably not much bigger than this one here at the Ginger Man. Um, it was just a warm room. You know, you, there are rooms where you can get the energy going, like this room right here at Ginger Man. You can feel it, right? Because it's kind of, it's, it's a triangle and you just know that the performers can get the energy building in a room. Um, and, and I thought Cross Currents was great. And, and Del Close had moved his uh, teaching there and he was doing a show there too. Um, and I remember backstage the first time I went on to improvise, thinking, I'm getting nervous. I don't know if I can do this. I'm thinking, well, if I'm going to feel that, I can't do this. I just have to stop right now, not even go out there. Yeah. So I either have to compartmentalize that and just say, I'm not going to feel that way. And just try to turn a blind eye to those feelings. So I don't know. I still do. You know, it's still hard for me to dress up. They send a, they send a um, stylist. When you do these magazines, oh, I did the most, this was the most audacious, uh, not Midwestern guy thing I've ever done. It's called The Rake Magazine. R-A-K-E. R-A-K-E. And it just came out. And they said, we want you on the cover. And the theme is going to be movie star. And I'm like, all right, forget it. I, <laughs> I, I said, look, I'm going to do it like an actor. You tell me what to wear and how you want me to behave, and I'll just pretend I'm playing a guy who thinks he's a movie star. <laughs> and and look at these pictures. I don't know if I can find it. By the way, you know you are a movie star, right? I know, but <laughs> I am and I'm not. Here, look at that. Look at that cover. Oh, wow. There's a right? little Clint Eastwood. Get out of town. There. Now explain it. For so the there's, a, there's a bow tie. There's a very... Um, severe look yes right look would out. you describe it as severe yes severe is good a teacher you're in the back of the class that's the look the teacher gives you it's very paper uh, chase okay a little yeah. bit john houseman yeah yeah i think it's uh maybe more like a nun would look at you that <laughs> way that's how i think of it um yeah is that a, that's like a gray suit jacket yeah with it's a, a navy blue bow tux. tie wait there's more to it and i and all the pictures i'm posing as a, as a movie star might. And, um, and I had fun doing it. You know what I learned 
David Cross and I, when we were doing Mr. Show, we used to push back so hard against all the promotional stuff. Wear this, do this, smile. You guys are comedy guys. Be comedy. Be funny. Weird, right? Like, <laughs> we're getting our picture taken. Just How dare take they? Take a picture of us. I know. <laughs> and uh, and uh, eventually you just learn to just, what do you want me to wear? What hat do you want me to put on? Where do you want me to stand? I just say yes. Right. Just get it over with. <laughs> when did you give away the the I'm compromising by doing that? Because that's it where it comes from, right? It just became exhausting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, because all of comedy is about poking holes in people who are putting on a front. And now you're being asked to put on a front, right? This is what we do as comedians is we make fun of people who are posing right. with a degree of artifice and fake ego, confidence, uh, authority. You know, we make fun of that. So now you want me to somehow participate in that. And it's the opposite of everything I do and everything I live for and everything I'm saying. But then you just look at your watch and go, I just want, I just want to get out of here. I'll wear whatever you want. I'll stand wherever you want. By the way, I did that with this. I mean, this is years later. This I've been doing these photo shoots now for mm -hmm. 30 years, right? And now you just go, it's all right. It's just a thing out in the world. And I'll do, if you think, and you also have sympathy for the photographer because the photographer, these aren't, we're not talking about the White Sox at all. I want to hear about the White Sox. <laughs> we'll get there. Uh, we'll get there. Uh, uh, but uh, the photographer's got a job to do. You idiot. Help him or her. Get, they need to get this thing and it has to be unique. And they took pictures last week of some other idiot and he was standing <laughs> against the bar with wearing his street clothes. So you can't do that again or he's going to never get a job again. So just do what you're asked, you fool. You lucky fool. <laughs> well, Someone wants to take your picture, you lucky <laughs> Yeah, clown. So just do what they say. Well, uh, okay. So but I, you guys get sure. promo shots. You know, listen, it's funny because I imagine myself as a kid watching someone like me and thinking, that guy thinks he's so hot. What an idiot. Mm. <laughs> and I'm like, well, no, I don't. But oh, it's hard to navigate sometimes. It, it is. And I want to get back to the Tim and Eric thing. And it's, it's kind of meta because... The whole idea of the behind the scenes and i was thinking about your career and this is this is how my mind works bob yeah i'm thinking of like a really serious scene from better call saul um and then after the fact like right after an emotional you know 45 minutes yeah. of everything everyone yeah. making a joke and laughing and yeah. i think of a hilarious just crying laughing scene from mr show and somebody flubs a line and at the end of that everybody's angry Right. And so, in other words, what you see. Yeah. And then what happens right after yeah. can sometimes be exactly the opposite. Yeah. Yeah. And so I think the point of this yeah. is all the people that you thought when you were younger, right. that what they showed you represented who they are. Yeah. Absolutely has nothing to do with who they are. Right. Right. But here's the thing. Is there a way to be a little more uh, down to earth and honest? Right. So, for instance, I, I think about my dad a lot who had uh, 
trouble with the booze and about the uh, the Rat Pack. We used to watch the Dean Martin roasts, and you know, alcoholism and alcohol was celebrated, and being drunk was celebrated, um, and laughed at, and you know, it was a warm-hearted kind of thing uh, state. It made you smile, and it did not make me smile as a kid. It, it ruined our family's life. It, it caused incredible tension and pain. So I always resented those guys in the Rat Pack. I always thought, you guys are selling to my dad this lifestyle that isn't real and doesn't play out in the real world with any degree of happiness. Um, and all I remember going to lunch with my dad and his uh, work buddies, and they would get ripped and be done for the day at one o'clock in the afternoon because they were just smashed, you know. Plus they all, and they all ended up broke. All, every one of them ended up bankrupt and divorced. And, you know, is there a way to be a celebrity and be a part of that world and not be, and not, and try to be a little more honest about, you know, life? It, it, I think it can be hard because we go to showbiz for like fantasy and for like, you know, in this movie, nobody that I just did, I'm beating the shit out of like 50 people. <laughs> I can't do that. I mean, I learned to screen fight, you know, I'm right. in better shape than I've ever been in, but I, this is, I can only beat you up if you're a stunt man and somebody <laughs> yells, you know, action and you're getting paid to pretend <laughs> to be beat up. So I don't know. How do you manage that that gap between the artifice of what is fun to see, by the way? Loads of fun to watch. That movie is a blast. And the real world uh, where you are you and you want to. Um, you know, I, I think that I think there might be various ways to do it. But like and I think maybe we've gotten better at it. I think one thing I do is, um, like I have, you, you've got my book there, A Load of Hooey, and I was just telling you about two projects I did with my kids. One's a kid's book, and one's a, uh, <clears throat> a podcast for, for Audible. I mean, just maybe try to find avenues to present the different sides of yourself so that a person who's perceptive and is, is watching can go, oh, this is... Uh, a show he's putting on as a action star, but he also can make fun of action, mm -hmm. you know, genre things in his comedy. I mean, it's all artifice, you know. Now, that's something I've always believed is that when you get on a stage, it's pretend. And that holds for politicians as well. <laughs> Agreed. All right. <clears throat> Are you going to read my whole No, bio? I'm going to let you read it. <laughs> I'm going to let you read page 95 uh -oh. Uh -oh. right here. This? Oh, yeah, I love this stuff. These are poems, baseball players' poems about sports writers and sports writing. Elegaic. What does the word elegaic mean? What about pastoral and contemplative? Why do you keep calling baseball all these weird French names? Stop it, douchebag. <laughs> Here's another one. The blank page. This is written by a baseball player in, uh, to, to celebrate sports writers. 
the blank page. <clears throat> Fat fingers dance across the clattering keyboard, grinding out meaning, ennobling the actions of real men doing something tangible for a living and not sitting on their asses analyzing <laughs> Pathetic. <laughs> Here's one called spring training. A gin and tonic for breakfast, plenty of sunscreen, a notepad, a hot dog, fat ass, planted in the stands, taking it all in, gorging yourself. This one's called spring training part two. Later, alone, in a motel room, farting. <laughs> and finally, one final poem by a baseball player, written by a baseball player, in tribute to sports writers. It's called Instant Analysis. We played hard, we lost. End of story. You, however, are the real loser. <laughs> Thank you for giving me the perfect platform to read those poems. Uh, your mind goes to strange places when you're uh, out of work. <laughs> uh, so this one was written how long ago? Maybe. Oh, uh, well, this all happened. I wrote all that stuff. Between Mr. Show and right. Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad, I was um, developing a lot of material for TV shows. And, and I actually wrote a show about minor league baseball hmm. called The San Diego Snakes for FX. It did not get made. But um, it was hasn't like, gotten made. Hasn't gotten made yet. Yes, show biz. I think minor, minor league baseball, which I've only read a few books about, is a uh, and I don't know what's going on with the minor leagues. I don't understand what happened where they collapsed a bunch of clubs, right? They did, yes. Yeah, yeah there are basically now four levels. There used to be kind of five or six, and so. Well, I think yeah. it's an amazing, pressure-packed, you know, hearts on your sleeves, hopes and dreams, lots of personality problems. Uh, <laughs> yeah, pressure cooker. Uh, and, and, a, and a place to, a great show could be set. Can I offer you a story from my 10 years in the minor leagues yeah, as yeah, a radio yeah, announcer? Yeah. Where were you, by the way? I was in Syracuse. I was in Salem, Virginia. And I, was, uh, I did one season of independent baseball in lovely Crestwood. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, you can use this if yeah. the San Diego Snakes ever go. Um, so they used to have roommates on the road. And the two players were both former major leaguers who had come back down to AAA, which yeah, that's a lovely life. Yeah. You enjoy yeah. that. Um, so the players decided that they were going to wager their entire uh, stack of meal money for that trip to Toledo and Columbus on this bet that they had made. And the bet they made was um, they were going to see who was the first person to flush the toilet during the four-game series in Toledo in the bathroom. And so two grown men, four days. Yeah, that's a full toilet. It is. So that's yours. You Did can nobody have win? Every, everybody <laughs> lost. Everybody America lost. wins. <laughs> America wins at that point. Uh, it's a good one. Yeah, it's, it's it reminds me of road comics, you know, life on the road with comics. Yeah, that kind of thing. What's your best road comics? Oh, I didn't do the road. Yeah, because but I'm sure I'll, you've heard I'll tell story. you why I didn't do the road. Well, you know what an upper decker is, right? Mm hmm. Well, people leaving those and stuff like that. And I mean, real comics could tell you. I say real comics. People who did the road and stuff could give you some good stories about cocaine and couches and stuff. You know, um, but uh, I, uh, I was actually about to go on the road when I got called up by Saturday Night Live. 
Uh, I was literally booked that week and I got a phone call on a Sunday and I was supposed to leave, I think on Monday or Tuesday for my first gigs in Wisconsin as an opener. And I had to call the booker and say, I, ha I can't do the week of gigs because I'm going to go right for Saturday Night Live. Very uh, great day. I was uh, above Orphans. Do you remember Orphans Bar? That's where my apartment was. That's gone now. That's, yeah, that's a big brick building. Or they redid the facade. I don't know if it's the same. Do you ever, do you ever contemplate your life and career if that moment hadn't happened when it did? Uh, well, I probably would have failed terribly at the road. I, I don't like that kind of life. And yeah. no, very, very few people do like it. Right. Um, but some people find a way to make it work for them. Um, there you go. Let the siren go by. Is that? Can you hear that? On the podcast. They're on the way to tend to a road comic. Yes. I think. <laughs> uh, an upper decker got out of hand. Uh, someone lit it on fire. Um, yeah. So, you know what I think would have happened? I think I would have gone to L.A. sooner and found my way. Found my way. Uh, and I love sketch comedy, so... I, there weren't many options back then. There was just Saturday Night Live, and then Mad TV was came along years later, and In Living Color came along a year or two after I went to SNL. I would have found a way. Maybe I would have wrote on In Living Color. Maybe I would have found uh, work there. But um, yes, it would have been quite different. I mean, SNL, I learned a lot from SNL. Mm -hmm. I had a hard time at SNL. Um, I, you know, a lot of people do struggle there um the pressure is very high everybody who comes in is young no experience nobody has any professional experience and then here's this thing that demands like ultra professional talents and abilities and so it's just like super hard and super pressurized and um it was tough for me as it is like i say for many people but I learned so much uh, just being around Jim Downey and uh, Al Franken and uh, Smigel, Robert Smigel. These guys are really the best at sketch writing. So I was finding my way. I'd written a lot by then, but I still had a lot more to go. And you just start to get those like patterns laid down in your brain of how a sketch goes. And, and, and then once you do that enough, you get better at it. Smigel's not well-known enough. Yeah, I mean, Robert Smigel, who does Triumph the Insult comic dog and writes a lot of Adam Sandler films, really, to me, was the greatest writer yep. uh, I saw at Saturday Night Live ever. Um, Adam McKay was a great writer. I was not there when Adam was there. And Michael O'Donoghue was a distinctive writer from the early five, first five years. Um, but I don't think anybody kind of made the show as relevant and strong, gave it so much, uh, such high quality pieces as, as Smigel did um, in his long time there from um, 85 to, I don't know, when he left finally. He stayed long after I left. I read you created Matt Foley for Chris. Yes, well... Um, we can say it was a partnership because Chris, you know, had that voice and he had that 
swagger and he had all those physical moves and he had the name Matt Foley. That was somebody from his uh, youth. But um, I gave it the story and the structure that it has and, and told a story with it. He had done it at Second City in an improv and he had just basically played a coach. We were doing some like anti-drug rally. We were improvising our way through it. And, and the, the audience was our student body, right? And he gets up there and he's telling the kids, you know, you're, you're not going to go anywhere. You're worthless. <laughs> <laughs> you know, uh, and it killed me. He was, you know, some of the moves were there. The physical moves were there. He had done that character in improv groups for years. Um, and then I just went home that night and wrote that sketch basically exactly the way you see it on Saturday Night Live. And not many things that I wrote in all my time writing on Mr. Show and everywhere came out, you know, come out the way you wrote them the first time you wrote them. Most things go through a lot of rewriting. But um, that was a kind of magic, a little bit of magic right there. And I pictured the van down by the river. I grew up in Naperville. We have a river, the DuPage River. And we had some people who used to hang out down there as a kid. Uh, I would see them. And, and so I just had this image of a person who landed there <laughs> after everything went wrong. Parked the van and said, I will wash my clothes in the DuPage. And this is where I will sleep and I will rebuild my life somehow. And also Tony Robbins was kind of starting up his... Mm. Uh, thing. And so the idea of motivational speakers was kind of coming to the fore at the time. And I, uh, so I thought just marrying the idea of a guy who uses himself as, as the negative uh, example would be really fun. Uh, Tony Robbins kind of, I, I don't know what his spiel is now, but um, he would always talk about how I was 300 pounds and I, lived in a basement and like they all kind of do some version of that. Yeah, you know? right. But this is a guy who still lives in the basement, <laughs> right. still can't get it together and says, you want to look like me? You want to be like me? Like I am now? Uh, it was really a magical thing. That was Chris doing that sketch is just, it doesn't get more, human and funny and powerful than that thing. That was weird. It was just weird. Because you do sketches and there's really good tried and true sketches. I've written quite a few that and done many with David Cross and you know the audition for Mr. Show is rock solid. That thing's great. And there's a couple of them. I think Lie Detector is great. I think um, Hunger Strike, although some people hate Hunger Strike. Really? Hate it. What do they hate? Repetitiveness. You know, there, there's right. a repetitiveness that can be so funny to me when you just hit a joke and you just keep hitting it. But the audition has that too, where he goes through the same I thing know, again, but, but that's what makes reason, it great. I, for some reason, I remember with the hunger strike, some people going, this, this is the worst sketch ever. And I'm like, no, it's the best. sketch." <laughs> I think some people feel that way about the story of Everest where uh, Jay Johnson is knocking over the thimbles over and over. But I think it's one of the best things we ever did. I like that repetitiveness <clears throat> sometimes, oftentimes. Anyway, <clears throat> but that sketch with Chris, 
Because, you know, the other thing was we weren't famous at Second City. The, the, the actors at Second City are not famous people. The, the theater is famous and people go there for a certain brand of comedy and, <clears throat> and can look forward to that. But um, this, you watched a guy, you watched an audience fully embrace somebody as a performer and in a weird way, a little bit as a person in the course of a five minute sketch. You watch them go from, here's a bunch of young people, yeah, they're kind of funny, that idea is kind of funny, oh, he's kind of funny, that girl's kind of funny, to like, oh my God, that guy is the funniest guy I've ever seen in my life, or will ever see, and I love him too. Yeah. Is, it was crazy, and great, great, great. You know, the other people like that are Jack Black, seeing Jack Black for the first time, I remember thinking like, you know, just the audience, everybody in the room goes, yes. Melissa McCarthy, mm -hmm, you yeah. know, um, these are rare people. You know, I've been lucky to get to work with some of them. Yeah. Uh, Jack Black in School of Rock, Will Ferrell in Old School. Like, yeah, nobody on the planet, alive or dead, could ever have been that good. Yeah. Right. 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 Like it's they a were magical moment. It. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it does. When you do things, as many things as I've done over such a long time, you really do become aware that like, it's just like swinging the bat. Like here, every once in a while, you're going to knock it out of the park, but mostly you're going to whiff. <laughs> and like, every, and every time you swing, you're swinging the best swing you got. You know, like, People compliment me, and, and especially when the writers on Better Call Saul compliment me on doing a good job. Ah, oh, you're such a good actor, Bob. You're just amazing. I can't believe what you do. And I say to them, you know, I tried just as hard before I did this as I'm doing right now. You just gave me the words right. and the scenario and the character that gave me, you know, a great place to work from. The, that's the only difference. The only difference is your work, not my work. My work was the same. My degree of commitment, my degree of hope and effort, and it was never different in anything I did. Go down my IMDb page. It's the same in every one. So I'm the constant <laughs> in the stuff. And then somehow there's a few things that are great. It, so when I think, again, Nobody, the movie Nobody, which is playing so well and which people are liking so much and, and it's making me so happy that it's done so well, I can only think about Derek Kolstad and Ilya Neischuler. Derek's the writer. He wrote John Wick. And Ilya is the director. Russian guy, really cool dude. Just loves movies. Loves, when I say loves movies, I mean these guys probably watch two movies a day for most of their lives, you know, <laughs> and they remember them. Right. That's the other thing. We all watch a lot of movies, but can you go, remember that third scene in Dead Poets Society? Uh, the, you know, remember the outtake from uh, El Mariachi that's only on the director's cut? And we're going to do that. That was so great what he did there. These guys, that's how their brains work. My brain kind of works that way with sketches and with rock music. Mm -hmm. We were talking about music and 
and DJing and stuff like, but I, so when people say they love that movie, this movie that I've got out now, and if you can believe it, it's still out. Isn't that weird? It's been out for like a month and a half. Um, uh, it's those guys. I mean, I showed up, I, I, I knew that I could play a part like that or felt I could. And I also built some of the character in that movie that was came from my personal life. Um, the way it just, your origin of it, it goes into a fantasy land, mm -hmm. a, mo a movie, you know, a movie realm, uh, which is Derek Kolstad's brain uh, on display on the screen. Um, but it's those guys, it's their love of film, their knowledge of uh, what just works, what makes people smile. And when we were shooting that film, they would say, people are going to love this moment. Oh, my God, this moment's going to make people laugh. This is going to make people jump out of their seat. And they were right. It's crazy. You know, here we are in Winnipeg in this abandoned warehouse shooting this thing. And they're like, wait till they see this. Wait till you say this line. You're gonna, it's going to go great. You're a movie star in this movie. You really are. Uh, for the purposes of this movie, I am you a movie are. star. And an action star. And an action star. That. Now listen, I'll take some credit for that. I trained for two and a half years to do my own fighting. You gave, you gave us a little uh, hint of that last time I saw you at the ballpark. You said, oh, this next project is going to be something else. Yeah. Yeah. It was a long time prepping for this. Because I wanted to do my own fighting because I love Jackie Chan, especially his early stuff like Police Story is my favorite action movie. And I think the other part of it is. Um, I don't when I there were certain things about my character in Better Call Saul that I thought would make the makings of an action character. Indefatigable would be the word mm -hmm. that I would use. He doesn't quit. And he's a little devious, which is actually a good thing for an action character, you know, to be clever and and uh, maybe even play dirty sometimes. And uh, so those things, I thought, lent themselves to to playing an action lead. So um, but I wanted to do my own fighting because. Geez, I don't think I'm that. Anything. Except like I can act and I could act that character, I could continue to play the character in the fight sequence, which a lot of action leads don't do. They get replaced by their stuntman as soon as there's any fighting on screen. And I won't name names, but just, if there's a lot of cuts in the movie, then the guy isn't doing any of the fighting. <laughs> so you see in our movie, nobody, there's far fewer cuts than you're used to seeing because you're actually seeing me and you see my face and you know that's me doing it. And I thought, if I don't do that, if I don't train up and, and am not capable of pulling that off, then I'm not sure what I'm adding to this genre that's worth anything. There's already great actors doing it. Liam Neeson's great. Matt Damon's great. You know, there's plenty of people who are good and doing it. But if I can do that, um, then, then that could be something I could, you could go, wow, that's different. That's I haven't seen that in a long time, you know. Um, so that's what we went, what we aimed for, and I guess we pulled it off all right. We can't. now I got to keep training. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. So sequels coming. I'm doomed. <laughs> well, we'll see, we'll see. But people love this movie. Yeah. It's playing very well. 
Well, uh, and also I had a great time making the action sequences. I had so much fun. It, it reminded me of, of comedy, of sketch comedy, because it's a sequence. It's usually between three and five minutes long. And it's a lot of planning. And, and there's a kind of, you got to come up with things that make you smile in the middle of it. You got to turn it a little. And, uh, and then there's this problem solving that you do when you do it together. And so you're there with a bunch of stunt guys and you're in the real location. Now you're not in the gym and there's always something that's not right. It's not what you planned. And now you have to change it and you have to work together. And it was so much fun shooting those. So I, I look forward to getting to do that again in a movie. So we'll see. Well, we come full circle. Um, the other thing I love about this film is it shares a title with a replacement song from their last record. So I look forward to your next movie, Answering Machine. Yeah. Which will be great. Yeah. Right? <laughs> and uh, Bob put the socks jersey on. Jason, yeah. he looks very natural. He looks, looks great. great. Tell yeah. me about the socks. You guys are doing great, right? Yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's at the time of this recording, uh, the White Sox are battling some injuries. But um, Jason, you, you can speak to this more than I can, but the, the energy at the ballpark has been off the charts. Does it feel different? And obviously last year there weren't, fans yeah it, it does i mean nine thousand feels like twenty thousand. It it feels like the amount of energy that you put into being that page with tom hanks on snl the yeah. one time <laughs> way too much energy. <laughs> threw yourself at that really uh no it's it's a it's a wonderful time obviously like the in part the energy of the socks got us lynn which right I mean, if the, if the socks are I, I know you want to do radio sure, sure. and that's your your no the whole. timing worked out and you know, I, I, I'm now in your decade, Bob. I just hit 50. And uh, I think you can relate to the idea of when you get to a certain age, it's all about what's going to make you happy. It's not about the yeah. the stuff when you were a kid. That yeah. You, you, you kind of revert, I guess, to being a kid and going, what did I dream of, like, the perfect job? And so yeah. that's kind of where, where I am. It wasn't about the other stuff. It was about experiences and trying to... And new challenges. New challenges. I mean, this action movie yeah, was like, I, I really, like... I had the idea, I was about 54, I was doing Better Call Saul, and I had this thought that people are watching this show around the world, which my brother-in-law sent me a screen grab from China of Better Call Saul, the ad, an ad for it, and I thought, wow, China, they're watching this, this show about a lawyer in Albuquerque there? And I thought, you know, an action movie plays around the world. But anyway, it was this challenge too, like yeah. probably never get made, but it'll be really hard. I'll be forced to do things I've never done. And let's go. I don't have forever. Let's do something really different. People said, why? And I said, why not? Yeah. Right? I'm sitting in between two people that just turned a corner in their lives. Yeah. To do something different. And I feel, what should I? I think you well, both should decide what I'm going to go do <laughs> you know what tomorrow. It is? Here's the deal, Jason. It's, uh, it's about what kind of midlife crisis start planning your midlife crisis <laughs> okay okay there's the one where you indulge yep so and i just go to a golden corral and eat a lot that's right you hit the golden corral up first person in line and last person to leave uh, <laughs> there's the one where you indulge there's the one where you uh challenge yourself like Len and I have done. Um, is there, think of another midlife crisis? Um, 
Well, I, I think I, those are the two. Yeah, those are the, the two. The, the other one is a new identity, th- right? Yeah. <laughs> you literally start over and you go, you yeah. know, the last 10 or 12 years, I just would like to erase from my... That's well, not going to happen you, you, to you, Jason. I was thinking there, bad boy. I was thinking chain wallet. There, there's the one where you turn Studs. state's evidence and you go on your change your identity. You've you've experienced that a couple of times <laughs> in the television program. Um, I, I do want to you mentioned the writers and everybody on Better Call Saul. How much leeway do you have to riff? Uh, not much. Good? Hardly any. None. Really? Yeah. Um, if it's here's. There are occasional moments where um, if you see the character, sometimes when this, there's this film crew um, where Saul Goodman, uh, Jimmy McGill, is making these commercials. Right. He's got this, right. he's kind of a, a wannabe filmmaker. He watches a lot of movies and he has all these references to movies. And occasionally he gets to make a commercial and he loves that and he plays director and he has a lot of ideas. He uses lingo from showbiz (laughs) and it's so much fun. Those are moments where it's pure comedy. And that's the joy of this show is that there are scenes, three page scenes that are pure comedy, three pages later, completely earnest emotion, deep, intense feeling like who gets that? That's like as an actor, that's just insane. A part that goes that wide ranging. Um, so occasionally when I do the fake commercials, there's some improvising going on. Otherwise, I try to do the script to the comma, yeah. exactly yeah. as written. Well, it's one For, of the best shows in yeah. the last uh, oh. over many decades. I mean, it's a can't miss. Well, thanks. Yeah. And just so you know, we're in the middle of season six and there's things are burning down. <laughs> it's great. And I've been waiting for this, just like the audience. I've also been waiting for explosions to happen, and they're happening. Yeah, you're a fan of the show. I mean, you're not just acting in the show. I know you love. I the show. I do love yeah. the show, and I yeah. and but I also want it. I want them to light the fuse, and they've done it. So get ready. Well, so please tell me, just real quick, please tell me that you saw in Naperville a uh, uh, Chicago sunroof. <laughs> Completely made up for the show. Come on. I know. <laughs> Come on. A Chicago sunroof, folks. Please don't do this. <laughs> I don't know if Sony could get sued for planning the thought. Yeah. Yeah. Bob, thanks so much. Uh, we're going to get you out to the ballpark. And uh, yeah. I've heard just, it's a nice park. It's a great park. Jersey looks good. I haven't been out there since the new park happened. Yeah, we'll get you there. There's, um, please tell me there's a few I-beams blocking the view, like the old park, just to celebrate the old Comiskey. There's just They put up two or three randomly to make it impossible for you, you to see the game. You can sit in the radio booth, and my head will block your view. How's that? <laughs> That'll be the Comiskey experience. And on that note, we know you have a Zoom call. It's so yeah. 2021. Yeah. Thanks, Bob. Okay, cool. Take care. <laughs> It's blazing hot outside. You get in your car to turn on the AC to get cold air pumping, but it blows hot air out. This issue is commonly caused by low refrigerant due to leaks in the AC system. You want an easy, all-in-one solution that will restore the cold air in no time. AC Pro Recharge Kits. Make restoring cold air easy for even those with zero DIY experience in less than 10 minutes. 
Save time and money versus going to a shop by picking up an AC Pro Recharge Kit today. Be a pro with AC Pro.